This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. The Bronx is the poorest congressional district in America, and in addition to struggling with high crime rates and poverty, this community has some of New York State's highest per capita rates of childhood obesity, diabetes, heart disease, food insecurity, and food stamp recipients. Stephen Ritz, the founder of Green Bronx Machine, understands how living in an area without access to healthy food can impact a community. As a Bronx native and educator in the public school system, Stephen has seen his students and their families suffer from the excess of cheap, unhealthy food, a problem which he began to solve almost accidentally. After seeing how his students responded to a flower planting project, Stephen set his sights on growing food. Unleashing a world filled with economic opportunity and good health for kids who had never been given this chance before. This quickly blossomed into the powerhouse that is the Green Bronx Machine, a nonprofit organization geared towards empowering K 12 students to grow their own food. The organization's National Health, Wellness, and Learning Center is a state of the art facility with a year round commercial indoor vertical farm and a food processing kitchen with solar and alternative energy generators. Together, Stephen and his students have grown over 40,000 pounds of vegetables, but he enthusiastically insists that his favorite crops include healthy students, high-performing schools, graduates, registered voters, living wage jobs, and members of the middle class. Keep listening to hear Stephen's detailed stories about how healthy plant-based foods have completely changed his students' lives, and his hopes of how the Green Bronx Machine movement can inspire similar transformations across the world. Stephen Ritz, thanks for joining us here on the One Green Planet office and for being on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Why, thank you for having me. It's just an honor, pleasure, and a privilege. So you've been here now five minutes before we got started with the recording, and I feel like I've known you for a long time already. You just have that energy about you, which I think is amazing. Uh, for our listeners who, for some reason, have no idea who you are and what you've done, how would you sum up what it is that you do? Well, my name is Stephen Ritz, and I am CEO, Chief Eternal Optimist, or Chief Excitement Officer of Bronx County. And I grow vegetables, but my vegetables grow schools, students, 
communities, and opportunities. So as I like to say 50,000 pounds of vegetables later, my favorite crop is organically grown citizens, graduates, members of the middle class, kids who are eating themselves into good health and brand new opportunities. Wow, you summed that up really well. So, you know, things some people might not know if they're not from New York City, but you know, Bronx is one of the poorest congressional districts in the country. Yes, we and are from the poorest congressional district in America, in the least healthy county in all of New York State, in the poorest performing school district in all of New York City. So how did you start a green revolution in a part of the um, city and a part of the country that is depends who you ask is sometimes called a food desert or a food swamp well we're going to kick that food desert term right to the side because it is a food swamp the notion of calling anything in a degrading term a desert is actually disrespectful to the ecosystem itself so i like to say there's a lot to eat in the south bronx just a lot of it is not worth eating so no it's not a food desert it is a food swamp and we are besieged by poor choices but my odyssey, if you will, uh, the power of a plant, really chronicles my history as a public educator, as just a champion of change for children. And remarkably, the further I got into my career, the more dysfunctional my life and my students' life became because of food, simply because of what we were eating and, and the choices that we were facing and the way we were being marketed to and the effects, if you will, of fast food and cheap food and just bad marketing on communities that have a lot of disparities within them. So my work literally began by mistake. Um, a lot of tragedy, which I highlight in the book. My wife and I lost some children. Um, I had to actually bury some of my students. And by happen chance, I just wanted to circle the wagons around my immediate family and take a job absolutely as close to home as possible just to reduce any commute time. I felt those 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the afternoon was time better spent with my family um, in a real crisis time. So I just put in for a transfer and wound up taking a job at the worst high school in all of New York City. Now to give you some context what the worst high school in all of New York City looks like, we're talking about a 17% graduation rate, we're talking about 256 felonies committed in a building, we're talking about 18 deans of discipline. So imagine having 18 full-time staff just to manage dysfunctional behavior. Something is inherently wrong with that. A school that has 48 school safety agents and 18 armed police officers as part of the staff. There's something really wrong with that model. But lo and behold, that's where I found myself and the students welcomed me and I welcomed the opportunity. And I was blessed with 17 overage, undercredited children and charged with this notion of teaching science if you will and i say it almost the flashback to Do thomas dolby blinded me with science science you know like oh what does that mean i really didn't know um you know i had spent years prior uh, doing crisis intervention for emotionally handicapped children taking weapons and drugs off children and dealing with some of the most disconnected children imaginable. So here I was charged with science, but I had this reputation that preceded me, preceded me as being a champion of children and a champion of opportunity and a real kind of project-based learning, hands-on, service learning, community-dedicated individual. So 
I get this job, and then one day I hear over the speaker, Mr. Ritz, come to the principal's office, please. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm in trouble. So I go running down to the principal's office. I'm like, yes, I'm here. And the principal's secretary is like, Mr. Ritz, we have this box for you. And instantly I'm like, yes, salvation. Someone has heard my prayers. Inside this box will be everything that's going to trans microscopes, telescopes, the internet, who knows what, but it had to be something great. And like a kid on Christmas morning, I take this box and I run out of the principal's office right into the hallway and I start ripping it open. And I rip it open and inside are onions, these little round things. I'm like, you know, as the children would say, WTF, man, I went from this overjoyed to disappointed in a minute. I'm like, these things look like weapons, projectiles. This is not science. This is stupidity. So I pack up the box. I put it on, carry it like an idiot back to my class, throw it behind a radiator, a six foot radiator near the window. And I literally forgot about it. Turns out, you know, I'm making my way with children and school's going on. And about six weeks later, there's a, a, the rumblings of a huge fight in class. This tall six-foot girl, over 200 pounds, tattoos and piercings, tough girl. She has just had it with this little kid named Gonzalo who is just needling her to death. And all of a sudden, she flies out of the chair and she goes running across the room. And I'm like, in slow motion, I see my career ending. Yeah, this is it. It's over. And the kids are like, there is blood in the air. And then to add insult to injury, I see Gonzalo reaching under the radiator to get something. Oh, like no. Weapon. Exactly. <laughs> oh, no. Right. That's the protocol in my school. So that was the emergency protocol. Duck and say, oh, no. So I said, oh, no. I duck. And he reaches out. But all of a sudden, all these flowers start falling out from under the radiator. And he picks up this yellow flower and waves it in the face of Carol. And the whole class goes crazy, like surrendering. And Carol doesn't know what to do. And that's what we call in the South Bronx a teachable moment. And um, it totally diffused the class. And I started looking like, where these flowers come from? What are they? So I figured we should look in the box. Um, and it turned out that those onions were actually flower bulbs, um, you know, daffodil bulbs. And we were sent them as an invitation to come plant them in local parks because people who know I had this whole notion of service-based learning and getting kids out into the community. So we actually looked inside the box, found out we had been invited to go plant these bulbs. And the reality is bulbs don't bloom until the spring. You plant them in the fall with the expectation that they will bloom in the spring. They have to kind of winter. But see, I was not that advanced of a science teacher. I don't know too much about plants. I know people, but not plants. So a lot of learning transpired, but literally we had these plants, these flowers. So we went and planted them in Poe Park, which was close to our school, and it made the news. Um, and the children had a wonderful time. And literally what happened is we went from being apart from to being a part of in ways that really included everybody. And children who had been marginalized, we showed up in a day and left our little part of the Bronx just a little bit better than we found it that morning and got a whole lot of love along the way. The long made short of it is those, uh, those students and I, I think that year we planted 15 or 20,000 bulbs across New York City, wow. won the Golden Daffodil Award. 
And all of those 17 children and I were invited to City Hall by the city council to be celebrated as like the model students. And of course, people should only know that half of them had come to me from other places with all kinds of baggage, including handcuffs for other kinds of plants. So it was rather remarkable to bring up special ed class and a class of children on probation to city council when everyone thinking it was the college bound program. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that was the start. Um, uh -huh. You know, I and, love I love the, the 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 story you have in your book about um, your um, students, and you know you have a lot of good stories in this book. But um, your students being invited for um, I think it was a dinner uh, in Union Square, where they were required to wear ties, and I think you put it really well in your book, where you say that was the first time people looked at them without a label, right. uh, which I think you know is sort of a you know sets the stage for what was to come. Um, and you know another thing that stood out for me was what started off as planting um, daffodils and flowers and that kind of grew into some other kinds of farming was when your kids discovered the power of food. And, uh, you know, you, you talk about, you know, maybe you can talk a little bit about what our hood veggies and okay. your first trip to Whole Foods with uh, Ooh, the kids. Our first trip to Whole Foods was amazing. So there are a lot of different pieces to this whole food concept because we started with plants. We started with ornamental plants, landscaping and gardening and things that led to living wage jobs, which was awesome because you did not need to be a rocket scientist to have a living wage job. And it was right at the time where Mayor Bloomberg was talking about the Million Trees Initiative, Oil New Yorkers for Parks, everyone should be five minutes for parks. So we were really looking at also storm water mitigation issues, um, you know, the tax incentives and abatements for green roofs. So it was the perfect time. And, you know, to your point, when my children weren't looked at with labels, realize this to me the greatest resource in the world is the untapped human potential in marginalized communities and make no doubt about it the south bronx is a marginalized community as is east harlem as are parts of brooklyn bronx washington heights and these children given an opportunity can flourish in ways that we've never imagined and for them it's just getting them to think a little bit bigger than themselves and also having people welcoming welcoming them into their community and to opportunity that they never imagined so i always say children need to see it in order to be it um but when they see it they get excited by it and i usually hear the three magic words what are you doing can i help can i do more and then the big issue this isn't fair so bringing it back to this whole notion of food uh, for better or for worse many of my students know someone in their family who is hungry or know someone in their community who is hungry we have soup lines for days and in, you know in the early 80s when i started teaching soup lines and soup kitchens were basically for addicts and the addicted um and single men but now, more than ever, and particularly at that time, we were seeing families on soup kitchen lines, you know, um, whole families that were hungry, parents who have two, three jobs and still don't have enough to eat for a variety of reasons. So food is something and hunger is something that resonates with all of us. And even if nothing else, you know, the ability to go online and see that people are starving to death um, in certain parts of the world is tragic. But the flip side is, you know, Obesity has also become the new face of hunger. I have classes where 100% of my students have someone in their family with diabetes. That's unheard of. You know, when I started teaching in the early 80s, listen, we had fat kids and we had skinny kids. 
but we never saw the obesity crisis, the health crisis, the diabetes crisis, the juvenile. We have the onset of puberty now in second and third grade for many children. That is childhood loss. So food is something that resonates with everybody. Um, but again, we really don't know what food is. You know, we've got 99 flavors of soda in the South Bronx, but you know, try getting, you know, it's easier to get liquor than it is to get lettuce. You can find a handgun with greater facility than you can find an organic tomato in most neighborhoods or a single tomato. So this notion of food and food justice became critical. And then we went to, so we started growing what we call hood veggies, you know, the stuff that we experience through bulletproof windows, whether it's broccoli or a weird looking green pepper or some onions. But my students and I had no idea that there were hundreds of varieties of apples or 35 varieties of peppers. So when we went to Whole Foods and, you know, Whole Foods, I love them and I'm so grateful for their support. And by the way, the book is available in every single Whole Foods um, now. And I thank Nona Evans and the Whole Kids Foundation for their undying and relentless support um, for not only for me, but for children and communities around the nation and around the world. We went to a store that wasn't bulletproof. We walked into Whole Foods and literally got drunk on tomatoes. You know, we walked into a store that wasn't bulletproof, smelled nice, gave free samples. I mean, you know, the security guard looked like a third grader compared to most of my students. My kids are big and burly. So we just literally saw things that we never imagined. And it looked beautiful and people were friendly. And a lot of my students who had had experience with other things that are grown realize that there is a whole market here. There is a whole opportunity. Uh, it was in 2007 at Columbia that I gave a talk called From Crack to Cucumbers. And I brought 20 or 30 young men to Columbia University who had been formerly selling drugs across Washington Heights, Harlem, and the South Bronx and transformed their lives simply by growing and selling vegetables. Now, no matter how you feel about the war on drugs, I think everybody benefits when more people are eating cucumbers and fewer people are using crack. So to me, that was the story, and I'm so grateful to Whole Foods for opening up our eyes and opening up opportunities. I mean, the book features students who have come through my program who are now working at Whole Foods in, in great positions. So it Whole Foods was an unbelievable experience. Every person should have the ability to see what healthy, fresh food is, what it looks like. And, you know, what do you think it is about farming and getting, is it getting your hands dirty? Is it the process of seeing a seed turn into a plant and then that turning into something you can actually consume? What how do you draw parallels? Because you're an educator. You've been you've been teaching kids before you became a farmer. Um, I'm, still a still... far. I'm still a lousy <laughs> farmer. I'm, I grow good people, um, and I'm working on vegetables. So, how do you draw the connection between you know what it is? What is it about farming or about growing things that helps to transform people? Especially you know the kind of young people you're talking about that didn't have the right opportunities, that didn't have access to healthy food, didn't even know what healthy food was, and you kind of had no way out of their given situation until this experience came about. What What is the experience itself that helps to change people from your perspective? So growing food is creating life. It teaches children that they are part of a living, breathing ecosystem, which is absolutely remarkable. But on a couple of different touch points, with little children, 
When you put a seed in a child's hand, you're making them a promise. You're making them a promise that that thing is going to grow and that remarkably they can be involved in that process. So they're betting on their future. So I love putting seeds in children's hand and sending them home for a week and having them come back and see something sprout and then grow. And even as an adult, 60 days later, I marvel that I can grow corn. I have this little thing in my hand and, you know, it's a six-foot-tall plant that dwarfs me or I have a 10-pound watermelon. I marvel at that. So inherently, when you farm, you're betting on the future. You're betting on the harvest and you want to show up there. Now, on a day-to-day basis, there is something really incredibly therapeutic about getting down and getting dirty, working with soil. And the amazing thing about farming is minute by minute in New York City, in urban farming, you're going to encounter a situation in a place that is usually an unproductive and neglected place and turn it into a beautiful, magnificent, aspirational space. So people get excited. So literally children who have never succeeded in school for a variety of reasons, minute by minute, day by day, week by week, and month by month can succeed. And at the end, you have something worth a whole lot of money. So if I were to tell you, quite frankly, and I walk into a room of gangbangers and kids who all think they were the next Nikki Barnes, only to wind up, you know, with a public assistance attorney and needing me to sign for their Metro card so they can go to probation, so maybe that dream didn't come true, that if you put a penny in the ground and 60 days later you had a $5 bill, wouldn't you want to plant as many pennies as possible? And kids get that. They respond to that. When they see affluent people, whether they're white people, Chinese people, people from around the world going to Whole Foods and spending cash on food and going to restaurants that aren't bulletproof and through a window and ordering by a number, they get excited. And that's the beauty of growing food. Now, the flip side, too, is doing some of the work that I do indoors, growing food with 90% less water and 90% less space indoors. Guess what? Your precious Air Jordans and sexy sneakers and fancy uniform will never get dirty on my farm. So I offer children a lot of different touches in ways that help them succeed and grow. So uh, I always say I'm married to my wife and everything else is innovation. So for me, it's about giving children the opportunity to see and imagine things they've never seen before. But it's so cool to grow food and 30 days later in a classroom be able to eat it or sell it. You know, we had a second grade class debating what they were going to do with the profit from their farmer's market. Were they going (laughs) to buy a movie? Were they going to go out to ice cream? And they said, Mr. Ritz would never say that. But the interesting thing is they said, no, we waited 30 days for this. We don't want it to go like that. Right. That was awesome. So we now have uh, Fluffy the therapy rabbit, no, Trixie the therapy rabbit, and we bought some school supplies and everyone got some markers. And, you know, these are the kinds of citizen democracy democratic you know inclusive decisions that really i love children to have yeah and there's so many lessons to learn from just the process of watching something grow and understanding what is required what are the inputs that are required to make that grow it helps you understand ecology it helps you understand uh how you as you pointed out are connected to the rest of the world and the best part if none of that still makes sense for you you can understand how to turn something into a a profitable product. You know, and at the end of the day, when you're talking about marginalized communities, if you can show people a way out by telling them you can do something which is fun, which which is a good experience for you, and at the end product is something you could sell and make money from, you already are create. you're solving multiple problems at once, which I think is 
the beauty right. of it. Well, overall. I'll never forget when I took a bunch of gangbangers to Gotham Greens. And, you know, God bless Viraj Puri for letting us through the door. And we got up on this rooftop with, you know, a bunch of children who came from a very different place. And they knew they were plants, yeah. but they didn't know people ate that. <laughs> and then it equated that if they ate it and they were buying it in Whole Foods downstairs, people were paying money right. for that. And then they saw adults who looked like them working. And the greatest thing is they were being treated with dignity and respect. Right. Some of them even had headphones on. They weren't standing behind hot fry machines and pressing buttons or bulletproof windows, button, you know, bulletproof windows. There was a sense of autonomy and dignity. And those children went from what I say excited to committed. They got it one, two, three. And that was the beauty of it. That's the beauty of seeing this is that, you know, plants are therapeutic. And, but for my little guys, when they understand that the water from the heavens is the water that floats in their toilet bowl, and that's the same water that nourishes their plants, OMG, they become water misers. So remarkably, I have the next generation of environmental stewards being born in the least likely place for them to ever be born, yeah. the South Bronx, you know, because they're making these bigger connections to a larger world that they would never have. And you don't have to preach to them. They just learn those lessons themselves. Oh, I mean. man, I'm afraid of those kids. Hell knows no fury like an infuriated class of fourth and fifth graders screaming, it's not fair. I love it's not fair. It's not fair is the greatest call to action in the world. Wow. So, you know, you teach by, you know, example, and um, there's probably a lot of people listening in in parts of the country that still haven't, you know, don't don't feel like there's a way out for them. Uh, what advice would you give people who are looking to either emulate the kind of work that you've done and bring it to uh, parts of the country that, again, similarly don't have access to fresh, healthy food or are marginalized communities? What advice would you give them um, to get started? Um, where do sure. they start even? Because well, it's been a long journey to this point for you. Been, and I'm just getting started, let me tell you. <laughs> so watch out. I can't wait to do this interview in five years from now. Um, you know, we've gone from hope to the Pope, literally. Yeah, uh, literally. Literally. Right. Um, and it's about really, so I call the secret sauce passion, purpose, and hope. Because passion, purpose, and hope is going to get you so far. And then sometimes it's that blind leap of faith that's either going to get you to the finish line or have you tragically fail. But the cool thing is you develop these big hard muscles in your buttocks and you bounce back up and I keep falling up the ladder of success because I embrace my failure. I really do. I am not afraid to fail. But my advice for teachers is, you know, do what you feel compelled to do within the context of your day job. And what I mean by that is, listen, I want to end hunger and poverty and the AIDS crisis tomorrow. I really do. But no one's going to give me license to do that in public school unless I do my job, which is educating kids and generating attendance and generating test scores. Now, the beauty of that is they don't have to be mutually exclusive. So find some common ground. Keep it small. Keep it simple. Keep it exclusive. Exclusivity breeds market share and celebrate often and grow something great. That's what this is really all about. Growing something great, finding your passion and making epic happen. Mm -hmm. You start small and you go big. So like, let's go, I'll give you a, a big question then. If you had all the money and all the resources um, and all the power in the world right now, and someone were to tell you, Stephen, fix our broken food system, what would you do? Um, you know, what are the simple things you would do? 
So what are the simple things I would do? Is number one, <laughs> I'd look at fair pricing. I'd definitely look at fair pricing. And what does that mean? Like I am, so for fast food, there is such margins in fast food. Imagine fast food vendors incentivizing healthier options by reducing the cost of the healthy option available in that store and by pricing it a little higher for things that have a negative effect on our body. I'm not anti-hamburger. I just don't want the world to be hamburger to death. The world can't afford it. So I think there are ways to drive behavior that are critical. Imagine if we started treating our soil and our farmers with the same dignity and respect that we treat our laptops and precious computers. You know, imagine refreshing the soil with the way we refreshed our computer screens. Little things understanding the inputs that go to food. That to me is what it's all about, is really having children understand that neither obesity or hunger is fair and how we have the ability through, you know, the choices we make to drive business. I am not anti-business, I am pro-business, but I am anti an extraction economy. And what do I mean by that? I am tired of businesses that prey on marginalized communities and, you know, single-serve packages, bulletproof windows, you know, one item at a time, and, you know, take the health, wealth, and opportunity from communities and leave death, disease, and disease in its wake. So educating children and giving them options. When you teach children what food is and what it takes to grow it, they start wasting less and eating more, and that, to me, is important. So... When you talk about unlimited resources, realize the work that I've done. I have self-funded. I haven't had a huge grant. I haven't had tons of money. We don't do big galas. I show up daily. I get my hands dirty. I meet people where they're at, in the front building of school, the front of their apartment building, or on the corner in a lot, and we grow something great. And that's what this is about. I like to say we got 99 problems in the South Bronx, but growing fresh food is no longer one. Why? Because kids are involved and parents are involved. So we can start addressing the other issues. And in a community that has traditionally never been involved at the table or invited to the table, my book is proof that, hell, build your own and invite yourself and have a good damn time along the way. And that's what this is all about. Yeah, I mean... You know, I, I like it that you have that you can see things from the top down approach, but also bottom up. And what I mean by that is so for someone listening and thinking, OK, great, I, 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 I'm not Stephen. Perhaps I don't want to be able to do that, but I want to make a change in my own life. What's the simplest advice you give people who are confused about their food choices? Well, look at me. I was over 300 pounds. For those people who don't know, I was over 300 pounds. I was diabetic, had a heart problem on 120 milligrams of this, 120 milligrams of that, cirrhotic liver. I was literally eating myself to death. And what was the big cue? And probably in the course of my lifetime, I gained and lost over 500 pounds over a period of about five years. But what was the one impetus that really led me to this sustainable 120-pound weight loss was just simple change. One simple change a day, lifestyle changes, less sugar, less salt, a smaller plate. Do you know that research indicates that people will take 20% less food if there's a contrasting color of the plate? So just by putting a contrasting plate down on the food that you serve, people will eat less and eat more thoughtfully 
That's critical. That's as I call awesome sauce. And yes, less soda. I gotta be honest, a lot less soda. Um, I love the taste of soda. It's designed to taste good and it does taste good. So if you treat it like a treat in your first date with your wife and you relish that first kiss instead of slurping down 64 ounces all day long, you're gonna be a happier, healthier person along the way. Right. And what about, you know, what do you think about industrial farming and its impact on the environment? I know you've been focused on, on vegetables. Um, what are your thoughts on, you know, you did mention to some extent how we're making cheap meat. And that's one of the problems um, in, in parts of the country that have access to crappy mm, cheap, food. Cheap food is so damn expensive. It is killing ourselves. It is killing our nation. It is killing the world and it is killing ecosystems everywhere. So I think we really need to look at the total, total cost of food production. That's one thing that really concern, concerns me tremendously. But food should be produced with dignity. When you think about immigrants, and now more than ever, given the political climate, this whole controversy around immigrants, think about what immigrants do. They spot opportunity and they come and they work like artisans to be a craftsman to create something great. So good food should be something great. It should be something that we're proud to celebrate and bring people to around the table. So I don't think we need more food, even though the population of the world is exploding. We need better food for more people. And we need to stop treating food as just a simple commodity um, because it is a sum of many inputs. And once we realize that, we will all be in a better place. Right. And, you know, if you've looked at the work that you've done over the past several years, um, you've taken the Green Bronx machine as a little movement. You planted this little seed. And as you pointed out, that's gone from hope to actually meeting the Pope. Uh, you've been at the White House. You've been um, on TV and literally everywhere and taken this movement globally. What are you most proud of uh, out of everything that you've accomplished and managed to bring out into the world with the work that you're doing? Well, nothing thrills me more than to show up and be on the front step of school daily and shaking hands with children saying, hello, handsome, hello, beautiful, welcome to school, and making sure that I can turn a smile, turn that frown upside down. But seeing children who are happy, healthy, and understanding that they are part of a larger living ecosystem and moving up the food chain, so to speak. You know, for so long, children in marginalized communities define themselves by the sneakers they wear, the clothes they buy, what's on the internet, and learning that they can be producers instead of bottom-end consumers is awesome sauce. Um, but, you know, we've had some great benchmarks, whether it's moving children from 40% attendance to 93% attendance, 100% graduation rates, 2,200 jobs. But what am I most proud of? I'm most proud of the fact that I have children who show up daily and can't wait to be with me in school for the privilege of growing vegetables and sharing food with their families and grandparents. You know, to me, that's just awesome sauce. We spent this past summer, my students and I grew 5,000 pounds of vegetables for senior citizens who are recovering from oncology, who are food insecure. Imagine getting through cancer, getting through oncology, getting through radiology, surviving chemotherapy and coming home and having no food. So for my young children, my third, fourth, and fifth graders who spent summer camp with me, who spent the time to grow vegetables to give to senior citizens, that brings tears to my eyes. That's how we're gonna heal the world and heal each other. And I'm also so proud of my parents. 
and, and the community that I serve, because it's real easy to say those people or that community. But as hard as I work, the obstacles that so many parents facing, two jobs, three jobs, rising housing costs, lack of real meaningful employment opportunities, struggle to bring their children to school on a day-to-day -day basis, those are the real heroes of the movement. The kids who show up every day and can't wait to wear a cheese hat, can't wait to do their homework, and can't wait to walk me to my car and bring me to my farm and make sure you know I'm drinking water and hydrating, Mr. Ritz. You have to hydrate. It's so cool to hear little children tell me to hydrate properly. <laughs> So those are the things that I'm most proud of. Wow, that's great. And you, you know, you're a kid. You were a kid from the Bronx yourself. Absolutely. Uh, if you had to go back um, and uh, give your young self, your teenage self, any advice, knowing what you now know about what you could have done with your life and what you have managed to do with your life, what advice would that be, given everything you know now? If you could go back and give yourself some piece of advice. Well, the best thing about going back, I would advise myself to be fearless, which I think in some ways I still am, but plan for the future because before you know it, wherever you go, there you are, and it sneaks up on you real quick, and guess what? You're probably going to lose some hair along the way. But I grew up in a time and in a community where you know, we loved people and used things. And sadly, we live in a time where we love things and use people. So my advice for everyone is to live more simply so that others can simply live. And let's get back to a happier, more inclusive, friendly place and bring everybody to the table. Wow. I like that answer. <laughs> and in terms of, um, you know, you've been, you've, you said you're just getting started. So there's a lot more you still have to do. And, uh, you know, you, the book's just been out a couple of months. You've, the Green Bronx Machine is getting bigger and better by the day and you're reaching more and more people. If the work that you're doing continues to go the way it is going right now, and if you're able to take another step and then take another one and build this into this global movement. And well, inspire. it is a global movement. Make no doubt about it. It is a global movement. I mean, literally, I was in Italy two days ago, four days before that I was in Denmark. We are expanding across Canada with the good food machine. I mean, to think about this, I built a classroom in the South Bronx by default and design. I kind of snuck it in, this National Health, Wellness, and Learning Center. We're building the next one in Dubai. You know, we've had visitors from 60 countries, six continents, anyone from Antarctica. If you want to come, I want to be in the Guinness World Book of Records. Please contact me. But to think that we've had people from 60 countries and six continents visit our classroom in the South Bronx that shows that you can go from impossible to I'm possible with passion, purpose, and hope. So Green Bronx Machine is growing. Um, we are looking at ways of scaling. We have fabulous curriculum. We are now creating a Green Bronx Machine Institute with the New York City Department of Education. So each and every day, we are adding these hard assets that are not only going to make our organization stronger, but make our impact grow and give tools to people because that's what people need, tools. We need to love each other and use tools. So the tools and my learning, I don't want anyone to go through some of the pain that I've went through. So by sharing my story in the book, if I can save people some pain and give you a fast track to success, God bless you. And in the process of purchasing the book, all the proceeds go to support the program and yet another opportunity for me to seed something and some opportunity. God bless. That's the way we do this. It's not about giving back. It's about paying forward. Right.
And that's so, what Green Bronze Machine is really all about. That's great. And so what kind of world do you foresee in 2050 if this all continues the way it is continuing? What's your vision for the year 2050 around 30 years from now? We desperately need to fix our broken food system if we are able to feed a lot of people good food uh, without parts of uh, the world's population having access only to terrible food or no food at all. What's that vision for you so you can then, you know, hopefully feel proud of everything that you've managed to do in your lifetime, not just through the work you're doing, but through the through the inspiration uh, you've given others who've now probably started similar movements in parts of the country and across the world. What's the world going to look like in 2050? Well, the world will definitely be hyper-connected. Make no doubt about it. Every day the internet is connecting people left and right, but it should also be hyper-local. So I love the notion that with technology, we can grow food literally zero miles to plate. And, you know, in my classroom, I'm growing with 90% less water and 90% less space, 365 days a year, regardless of seasonality. That's the beauty of hyper-local. That's the beauty of technology for a better global good. So what I'd like to see is people a much more, em a bigger emphasis on local food systems, a bigger emphasis on what healthy food is, moving towards less meat, more plants, more fiber, less sugar, less processed food, less medication. Realize we're looking at the first generation of children who are not gonna outlive their parents, even with iPhones, simply because of what we're eating. So understanding transparency and labeling there is a world of information out there and i think sometimes we are over informed and there's too much information to be had and coming at us from such different ways not to mention fake news alternative news and all that other controversy but simple transparency is critical but again if every child i don't have the ability to build new schools i'm not bill gates and if i was i'd probably spend all my money building new schools in far off lands but I do have the ability to put a plant in every classroom, to put a seed in every child's hand. And with that comes the promise of growing something great. And that's the most important thing, connecting children to something bigger than themselves, greater than themselves, and something that ultimately nourishes themselves and heals the world in the process. Well, couldn't have said it better. That was amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I highly encourage readers to check out Power of a Plant, uh, the book that's out now, and also check out Green Bronx Machine, which is Stephen's yes, nonprofit. Yes, please. Thank you. Get to our website. Visit the children on Facebook. The children run the Facebook page. It's absolutely hilarious. Um, so please, if you're listening, your homework is like Green Bronx Machine on Facebook. Uh, you can like Steve Ritz on Facebook, too. You could follow us on Twitter. Um, we welcome donations. We welcome your support. Reach out. Uh, I don't have my hand out, but I do have my hand up and say, work with me, walk with me, and let's grow something greater together. And anybody wants to volunteer, come on down. We got 99 problems in the South Bronx, but growing fresh food is no longer one, and we're delighted to teach you how to do the same. So get out there. Please buy the book if you have the book. Post about it, share about it, talk about it. There's a great study guide. Um, I know it's coming out on audio, which is kind of excited. I hope they get someone who sounds like me a little. So I think I, I want my enthusiasm to come jump out of the audio tape. Or do they still have tapes or the C CD or whatever it is, the MP3, whatever it is. But um, You use the iPhone or yeah, whatever smartphone you have. Exactly. <laughs> but um, yeah, so please be supportive. And most importantly, be kind to yourselves. And 
if you leave here today and you go home and you thank a parent, thank a teacher, thank a mentor, a grandma, a grandma, an auntie, or an uncle who took the time to do something kind for you in your life, I will just be tickled pink and send you big kisses from the Bronx. <laughs> thank you, Stephen Ritz. And don't forget, eat your vegetables. <laughs> this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for uh, making the long trip from the Bronx to the Upper West Side. Yeah, well, um. it is. You know, I always say it's five <laughs> short miles, but six long degrees of separation. Right, right. And we're bridging that gap daily because of the work that you're doing. And so. thanks, and because of the work you're doing, too. So God bless you, and God bless all the listeners. Si se puede. Make epic happen. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's EFTP.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening.